Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Laura Davis. Laura is the author of The Burning Light of Two Stars, a memoir about her tumultuous yet loving relationship with her mother, and six other nonfiction books, including The Courage to Heal, Allies in Healing, I Thought We'd Never Speak Again, and Becoming the Parent You Want to Be. Her groundbreaking books have been translated into 11 languages and sold 1.8 million copies. In addition to writing books that inspire and change people's lives, the work of Laura's heart is to teach. For more than 20 years, she's helped people find their voices, tell their stories, and hone their craft. Welcome, Laura. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I love talking to you. Oh, I love talking with you too. And I felt so much in conversation with you when I was reading your memoir. And there's just so much I want to ask you and talk about. I mean, there's so much. And, and, and there were a lot of areas where I felt we had some common ground. You know, I do appreciate the reference to your Jewish background. Um, and, you know, I write a little bit about that in my memoir and the Yiddish that you occasionally throw in. And you have so much cooking in this memoir. When did you you know you were going to write it? Well, the first thing I published about my mother, I was 23 years old. Mm. And I wrote a poem, two poems actually, that were about her. And they were accepted in an anthology that was being put together by Tilly Olson, Mm. um, who was still alive then. And it was called Mothers and Daughters. So that was my first time getting Mm -hmm. published about my mother. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just kept writing about her. You know, she was loomed in my life I mean, I, I was going to say, especially when I was young, but really my whole life, she loomed as this incredibly larger-than-life character. And she mm-hmm. was. She was like a burning, bright sun, you know. <laughs> and she mm-hmm. wanted me as her daughter to orbit around her as a satellite. And that's where we started having problems because, mm-hmm. you know, she gave birth to someone who was like her, a powerhouse of sorts. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we had conflict from, from pretty early on, I'd say from from the time I started asserting myself as like a preteen teenager. And But our teenage mother conflict was not your typical conflict. It was much more extreme. And so, you know, she I was obsessed with her, uh, whether we <laughs> were estranged, which we mm-hmm. were for years, or whether we were trying to make peace with each other. She always was living in my psyche and like, I felt like she was like in my solar plexus somewhere and I, mm. her voice was just right there. So mm-hmm. it was, she's kind of one of my core subjects that mm-hmm. I have written about. And, it, you know, she appeared in several of my books in a small way. About 20 years ago, I published a book called I Thought We'd Never Speak Again, which was mm-hmm. about the path from estrangement to reconciliation. And it was inspired by the fact that she and I were working our way back into a reconciliation after a very deep and bitter estrangement. Mm -hmm. And so I was really interested in the topic, and I went out and I interviewed lots of people. Um, You know, I interviewed Vietnam veterans who went back to Vietnam. I interviewed people who had taken part in restorative justice. I interviewed lots of family members, 
you know, who were either making peace or not with other people in their families. Um, I, I, I interviewed people who, who ran a camp that brought together Israeli and Palestinian girls. And, and it just was really a fascinating project. Yeah. And in that, that book was pretty much a how-to, you know, how to reconcile. When is it possible? When is it not possible? You know, what are the types of reconciliation? How long did you spend collecting all those interviews? You know, I don't remember exactly. I'd say two years, probably. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it took me two or three years to write that, probably three years altogether. Um, And then, you know, the, the, the kind of the thread that tied the book together was just a little hint of the story with my mother, you know, so Mm -hmm. it appeared, but it was, you know, maybe it was 2% out of 100%. So it was Mm -hmm. there. Um, And actually, a couple of the stories that I told in that book, I tell in more depth in the memoir. Well, I really appreciated that in the memoir that you actually kind of give a a behind the curtain look about how that book came to be and your conversation <laughs> with your mom. You, you know, and for people who have not read this book, it's you you really must go get the burning light of two stars. But there's also this really interesting structure that you've set up. And this is a really good book to study for structure as well. And very helpful and very, you know, it's very clear cut. You've got the story unfurling of how your mother is getting closer and closer to her death. Then you've also got these flashbacks with age stamps. So we know how old you were, how old she was, and where you were. So you've got those chapters. And then you've also got, after she passes away, you've got these letters and correspondence that you're going through and reflecting upon. So there's really this like triple-pronged approach to understanding your story. And it's, it's done with such clarity. And it offers a lot of dimension to the arc. You know, it's interesting, that third element, the element of the the letters or the reflection, it's actually a pretty small component of yeah. the book. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's a thread. It's not like a major element. But I had different editors and, and a lot of people said, oh, just cut that out. Mm, <laughs> just take that out. You don't need that. That's, it's too, your book is too complicated. And huh. I just kept, you know, I kept whittling it down. So it, you know, maybe there were 20 of those sections at the end. I think there were eight or nine and they, they got shorter and shorter and shorter. But I felt like they were important because to me, those sections largely were based on these letters I found in my mother's things mm. um, after she died. And it was this whole cache of correspondence. And she had saved every letter she'd ever written to me, um, every letter she had written <laughs> and not sent. Um, and the first drafts, which were uncensored, of all the letters she did send. And then she had saved all the letters I sent her. And I had kept the same. I mean, I, I just shoved everything in boxes and put it in, under the eaves in my office. And I didn't mm-hmm. really know what I had. But I had saved all the letters she had sent. I had journals that had all the drafts of the letters I didn't send. And when I put all of that together, there was like two big file folders of these letters. I mean, we've lost the art of correspondence. They were amazing letters. Mm. They were handwritten. By the time I got to them after her death, you know, the pages were brittle. The folds were cracking. They smelled Mm -hmm. like mildew. And I I forced myself to read those letters. And what they revealed was that the kind of habitual story that I had been telling my whole life about my mother and about our relationship, it wasn't entirely true. Right. And that comes across. And, you know, I, I want to point this out because actually 
There's a quote from your book that I wanted to, I mean, I could have pulled many quotes, but it is actually from one of these sections. And I think it, it talks about this, this juxtaposition and pattern making. This is from page 109. This is something that you wrote to her and she will respond to it in the letter, but this is excerpted from your letter. Writing this hurts. It is an actual physical pain, a longing for something out of reach. I don't know how to reconcile such rage with the depth of love I feel. For half a year, I tried silence, setting boundaries so I could separate and focus on my own need to heal. Is there a next step? For me, there is only the terrible rage and the awful love, and I don't know what to do with either of them. And for me, as a reader, I felt so much that this is this powerful thread. And on on the next page, on page 110, you kind of highlight this again in your commentary about it. You write... As I study our correspondence, one dynamic stands out. I was reaching out to my mother and pushing her away at the same time. And this gets to the heart of what so many great memoirs have for me, which is that juxtaposition, that pattern making, that kind of constant spiraling around this same idea that the memoirist is struggling with. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it, I mean, it was a struggle for me when I when I read those letters because I had always said, you know, that my kind of stock line was my mother and I didn't speak for seven years. You know, she had she, there was a huge betrayal of her towards me, um, and then we didn't speak for seven years. And but these car, the letters occurred throughout those seven years. In fact, they were heightened. And also, I had always remembered the really hostile communications from her Mm -hmm. and they were there Mm -hmm. there were some really nasty communications Mm. but there were also these loving generous kind letters and I had forgotten that so you know part of my story in the memoir is I had to grapple with the ways I had a limited view of the past and you know everything I said was true but it was just part of the truth and so part of what I come to terms with over the course of the story, uh, with the help of my partner, Karen, who, you know, really helped me, you know, she was like that friend when you're structuring a book, you know, who kind of helps you on your journey. Mm. She helped me realize that I was always looking for evidence to prove all the ways my mother was terrible. You know, it was like stockpiling it. And and even when she was old and she she moved to California and I ended up taking care of her at the end of her life, which is is really one of the very core questions in The Burning Light of Two Stars is, can you caretake a parent who betrayed you in the past? Mm -hmm. And so I end up, she moves to my town from 3,000 miles away, and I'm in charge of her care. And it, it was an incredibly challenging, difficult thing to do, because when, when she had dementia, it began to bring up all the conflict we had had in the past. Mm-hmm. Because her her behavior, you know, of being rageful, of being anxious, of being abrupt, of being unpredictable, emotional, was, was all the worst qualities I'd grown up with. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly they were exacerbated by her condition. And so I was triggered all the time. Right. So not only were you triggered from what you experienced growing up, but you also have so much less goodwill and feelings of calm and goodness between the two of you to draw from you know all that good quality time where you have good experiences together is is kind of that bank account is in the negative right because everything is just so combative and so it's it's the only reality you're living as she's getting older and so I can't imagine that's hard under any circumstances but when it's kind of recruiting these feelings from the earlier betrayal it would just be 
I, I don't know how you did it. And that's what this book is. It's remarkable in so many ways. And I wonder, were you fully in control and aware of your pattern with your mom and what this push-pull was like when you began writing the book? Because there's this anger and utter frustration with your mother and also incredible pain and loss. And and part of the, the keeping up of these letters is sort of a testament to how significant you two were in each other's lives, how precious everything was between the two of you despite all the pain. And so... So I know for me, when I was writing my memoir, I wasn't quite sure what the pattern was. I had the story and I understood sort of the structure of where I needed to go, but I wasn't sure about my own part, the part that I played in the story. And so I'm wondering when you sat down to write this, did you already know what the struggle was internally for you or did you experience it and, and explore it as you went? I, I definitely explored it as I went. I think in the beginning, like my early drafts, I used a lot of beta readers. That's part of my process. I had, I think, 130 people mm. read this book in the 10 years it was in development. And I would always ask questions. And one of the questions I asked repeatedly each round was, how do you feel about the mother character? You know, and mm. at first people mm -hmm. would say, well, you know, God, your mother's so difficult. Or I'm so glad she wasn't my mother. Or I can't believe what you had to put up with these kind of comments. And that to me said that I had not I was just at the beginning because I never wanted to write a book that would be a vendetta in any way. And then I had another friend who um, was a creative writing teacher for 30 years, Susan Brown, and she read some early pages and she just said, you know, you just come off as the hero and you're making your mother the villain. Mm. Um, and she mm -hmm. said, you know, Laura, this isn't the courage to heal, it's the courage to reveal. <laughs> and, and I put that up on my wall. Um, over my desk. And that really guided me. I, I wanted to show more of my underbelly. I wanted to understand my role in this relationship. That was more than just, you know, having this very difficult person that I had to relate to. And so I just, each draft, I became more vulnerable. Mm, and, and can I ask you before you continue, what is so important? And, you know, of course, this is a bit of a leading question, but <laughs> what is so important about not villainizing the person you're writing about? For one, I don't think it's fair. Um, but more than that, I think it's boring. Mm. Uh, for me as a reader, I'm not interested in reading a story where one person is the hero and one person is the villain. I think it's much more fascinating to study two very complex, complicated people who both have tragic flaws and watch what happens when fireworks are exploding between them. I mean, that's mm -hmm. much more compelling. It's mm -hmm. also much more real. I tell my writing students that too, you know, if they bring in something where they're the hero, you know, or that mm -hmm. this person is just villainized, like I might give someone, let's say someone has an antagonist uh, who is, you know, maybe has done some really, really horrible, awful things and maybe generally is an awful person. I would say, no, I want you to write a scene where that person is doing something they love the most. Mm -hmm. You know, so it could be like, you know, the Nazi who is tends the most gorgeous, beautiful roses. And you would write mm -hmm. a scene of, of that man in his garden or uh, being kind to a neighbor's child, you know, or, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the abusive father, you might write a scene about the way he loved horses, you know, or mm -hmm. um, the way he used to make fresh apple juice once a year for the family or, you know, some, some, some moment. And then that person becomes so much more human. Um, and the other thing that I, I did, which I think sh kept shifting my story, is that 
I began, at, through the process of writing and grieving, um, I began to see my mother from a much vaster perspective. You know, mm -hmm. it was like, mm -hmm. instead of being embroiled in the mother-daughter conflict, I started looking at the trajectory of her entire life. You know, mm -hmm. um, our c biggest conflict was about the fact that I said that her father sexually abused me. She said it never happened. You know, so mm -hmm. I just started really thinking about, well, this man was her father, you know. Um, and then I thought about, you know, the, she grew up very, very poor in New York City, the child of immigrants. And what was that experience like for her? You know, mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm Jewish by birth. And, you know, what was the trauma passed down through the generations of Jews to my grandparents, to my mother, mm -hmm. to me? And, and I just started seeing things from a much bigger perspective and also appreciating some of the really amazing qualities my mother had for a woman of her generation. I started seeing her in her context, not mm -hmm. just as my nemesis. <laughs> and it, it changed. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason how I knew the book was finished is the last set of readers I sent it to, uh, people said, God, on this page, I hated you and I loved your mother. Mm -hmm. And on this page, I hated, I hated your mother and I loved you. And then I knew, and then people started saying, your mother is such an amazing character. I love your mother. Mm. Even though she's, you know, I wouldn't have wanted her as my mother, but that she was <laughs> funny, she was dramatic, she was charismatic, she was self-centered. I mean, she had so many qualities. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like, and what's been really sweet is some of my relatives have been reading the book and, you know, several of them have come and they said, you know, it's her. <laughs> you know, I recognize her. And that, that has been kind of the best feedback I've gotten from anyone. Mm. Um, that, that they felt, I, and they felt I was fair, you know. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the shift in writing for yourself and your own self-discovery about your relationship and healing to writing for an audience of readers? Yeah, well, well just in terms of this particular book, um, in order to write it, I had to create a protective container around me. And that container was, I don't have to publish this. Mm. You know, I probably mm -hmm. won't publish it. I'm just writing it for me. I need to do this to resolve this relationship. I need to do it to grieve for my mother and process this very intense, dramatic relationship we had for 57 years. And so I gave myself the freedom to just write it for me. And, you know, maybe in the back of my mind, there was always the possibility that I would publish it. But really, it wasn't until nine years into the 10 that I mm. made that decision. Like, I actually want to publish this. So that that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. um, and but, all along, were you getting beta readers along like, yeah. later on in the process? Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. I was. I was. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other part is I have, you know, lots of writing students who come into a class or a workshop, and what they're wanting is to have a deeper understanding of their own life. They're wanting to use writing as a way to excavate, to discover, to gain insight, to recreate the past, to own their history, um, and to heal. And mm -hmm. I, this is what I've been teaching, you know, for 25 years, and I absolutely honor and love the purpose of using writing for that. And that kind of writing is not intended for anyone else to read. I mean, maybe mm -hmm. you would read it to one other trusted person, or maybe you would read it to your sister or, or the other person that's involved in it, or you'd read it in a, a sacred writing circle, you know, where it's safe and it mm -hmm. could be witnessed. And in that witnessing, 
you experience a really deep integration and healing, uh, which is very profound. So I'm all for that. To me, that kind of writing is just as valuable as someone who's writing for publication. But if you want to transition from writing for yourself, writing as a tool for healing and self-discovery and grounding, to writing for an audience, it's very different because you have to start thinking about the person reading the book the person reading the story, you have to start writing for an audience and you have to start, your story has to have a shape. Mm -hmm. It has to have a structure. It has to be compelling. This may sound really harsh, but the reality is uh, no one cares about your trauma. No one cares about your addiction story. No one cares about your adoption story. No one cares about your adventure. You know, there are thousands and thousands of stories about all these topics, you know, your eating disorder, your recovery. What makes the difference is the compelling way the writer is able to tell that story, even though the theme has been explored over and over again. When I was launching the book, I got interviewed and the woman asked me, you know, why did you write another mother-daughter story? Like, don't you know that that's like, most memoirs are about abuse or mm -hmm. mothers and daughters. You know, mm -hmm. most people writing memoir, and, and your book is about both of them. And I just said, well, you know, I felt like I had a unique experience, and I felt like I could tell it in a way that would be compelling and that would make people want to read it, you know? So I just, that's such a funny <laughs> question. Like, I, I don't know. I'm just like, I don't know what I would, I mean, of course you have to answer the question, but I'd be like, what are you asking me here? <laughs> like, I mean, I get it's worth reflecting on, of course, and I really appreciate this sort of come to Jesus moment about memoir like it's good to hear from you that you know no one actually is asking for your story necessarily unless it, it has to earn its keep like it ha and, and and this speaks a little bit to when I was first transitioning into memoir myself after being a fiction writer I was convinced there was no reason I needed to add my voice my story wasn't important enough people had it far worse etc and my teacher at the time Deborah Gwartney said you know if you don't tell your story who will or if they do tell your story, they won't tell it the way you would tell it from your perspective. Right. So that's why you can tell your story. Right, right. So, you know, I think you have to start thinking about when you're writing for other people, you're creating a product. And the product is a book. And a book has certain characteristics. If you want it to be read, you know, I mean, most memoirs, many, you know, they sell 200 copies. And it's the people that that person knows, and it doesn't go beyond that. Because the memoir then has to move beyond your personal story and tap into something much more universal. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like Burning Light of Two Stars, it deals with issues of aging and end of life. It deals with issues of being a caregiver. It deals with estranged relationships, which are just everywhere in our society right now. It, it touches on themes beyond my mother and me. And so I think that's what you have to start looking for is how can you pull out what's universal? How can you tell your story in a way that it's more than just your like small story and it becomes larger? Right. And then we've talked before a little bit about this idea of writing very difficult things, you know, and, and how, and this is sort of your, you have many areas of expertise, but I would say that you are a really good source for learning how to write about the really, really hard stuff. And I wonder if you can share some of your thoughts about that. It's, you know, this is a topic that comes up with my students all the time. You know, someone will come to a class 
they're working on a memoir and they just come in and they are really devastated at um, how difficult it is to go back into those very painful memories. And because in order to write them in a compelling way, you have to feel them again. You know, you can't mm -hmm. write them from a dissociated distance, mm -hmm. you know, or through this, this screen of vague memory. You have to really be willing to get into the, the sensory, gritty detail to write it. And so, you know, there are a lot of strategies that I've used myself and that I teach. You know, one is to know when you're going, when you need to write those kind of scenes. It's not going to be your entire book, but to think about what kind of container do you need to feel safe to write it? Like I have these work weekends where people come for three days and they just work on their project. And it's a safe environment where people could do that kind of deep Right. excavation. You know, or someone, mm -hmm. so someone might do it in a workshop. I used to go to a monastery down in Big Sur, and I would just rent like a little trailer, you know, a little funky place for three nights. And I would just go down there and do nothing but write. And mm -hmm. I had no distractions, and I could just let it rip. And I would, mm -hmm. I would then be able to go deep enough to, to do some of that work. When I was writing some of the most painful and difficult scenes, I needed to get myself back into therapy. Mm -hmm. I really needed support because so much was coming up and it felt almost like I was going through it again. And I started having a hard time differentiating between my current adult life and the period of time I was writing about, you know, and, and the person I had been who was far more damaged and vulnerable. And I, I it was starting to bleed into my current life. Mm -hmm. So I needed some help mm -hmm. setting boundaries. Another thing that could help is just a, really a, like a simple ritual. Like I wrote an invocation that I, about, about the book, and I would read it before I would sit to write these scenes. I would sit in a particular place. Sometimes I would light a candle. Another thing that can help is, you know, set a timer, like half an hour, and at the end of the half hour, you're going to get up. So you know that mm -hmm. no matter how deep you go, you're going to, you're, there's going to be a signal for you to get up and, and you plan ahead of time what you're going to do. For me, it would often be just going for a walk, you know, just mm -hmm. feeling mm -hmm. my feet on the earth, breathing, looking at trees, you know, just being in nature would help me ground again. And, mm -hmm. you know, each person is going to have their own method, but knowing that doing this kind of writing is going to have a reaction. So, you know, don't do it. Don't write this kind of piece when you have to then, you know, go to, go to school and pick up your kid. Right, right. Create a buffer around it. Yes, because it's really hard to switch gears sometimes. And it's hard to really commit to that process if you know that there's going to be these other people you have to take care of or if you're just not feeling strong enough to do it. I I like that idea, too, or a time limit so that if you know you're going to be doing something pretty pretty difficult for you to set that timer or to know you just have to do a half hour and then you can take a break. I mean, why? It's hard enough to write. It's hard enough to write memoir. And why Why should we be hard on ourselves and not take care of ourselves while we're doing that? And, you know, the other thing I think that's important to say is that there are times it's not right to do that kind of excavation. You know, if you mm -hmm. don't have the stability mm -hmm. in your own life, the emotional stability, the psychic stability... Um, if you don't have the kind of support in terms of, you know, people you could go to or therapy or a support group, if you don't have the, the resources, sometimes uh, it can become too overwhelming. And I think when that happens, then it's a good time to back off 
and come and, yeah. and work on some other aspect of your book that doesn't require that and then come back when you're ready. Yes, yes. I mean, I found also in terms of perspective, I don't think I could have written what I wrote years ago. No way. I had a different sense of my story. I had a different emotional development. Like I just wasn't ready to look at it the way that I was when I finally wrote it. And it even changed toward the end right before it it went to final because things in my life changed and the relationships with the people it was about changed. And so I, and I also want to say that I don't think I've been able to write about difficult periods of my life now that I feel more secure and safe than I could when I was in going through those times or uncertain. You know, I, I think that's true. And yet sometimes I've written some amazing pieces when I'm right in the heat of the moment of the experience. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, for sure. For sure. That's like a push pull. And I think you have to follow your instincts. When I'm feeling overwhelmed, I do need to write. But the final product is going to come out when I have some time to really reflect for me. I have one more suggestion before we move on about writing about really difficult material. And this has really been useful to me and to my students. Um, and that is when you know you're going to write something really hard, really challenging. You know, you're going to write the scene where you were raped, you know, or mm-hmm. you're going to write about the day you lost the baby or something that's just, you know, very, very painful and is going to put you into a very difficult, difficult place. Follow that up by using writing to write about something that will ground you. For instance, you know, do that writing, take a walk come back and and spend 20 minutes writing to the prompt, what brings me joy, Mm, mm -hmm. or the ground on which I stand, or tell me my strength, something like that. I have Mm -hmm. a whole, you know, list of them that I, I send to people. But, you know, we often think of writing as a way to excavate and to get into really painful material. But writing can also be a way to ground us. Mm -hmm. And we often forget that part of the equation. Mm -hmm. But it can really, really help to write something that will help you get in touch with joy, grounding, stability, um, and remember who you are today. Um, Mm -hmm. And and that's often will help you move past, you know, the trauma. And and also sometimes it's just going to be hard. You know, if you spend a week writing some really difficult scenes in your book, it's going to be a really hard week. And and you have to really just up your self-care, whatever Mm -hmm. that means for you, Mm -hmm. and allow yourself to feel it. You know, you're not going to die from it. Mm-hmm. And and we, we often think when we remember something painful, it almost feels as, as if it's happening again. Mm-hmm. But it isn't. We mm-hmm. are still the adult looking back. And we just have to remind ourselves. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. I'm thinking about memories and how writing memoir affects our memories. And I went to a lecture from a fellow podcaster named Ginger Campbell a couple months ago, and she interviews brain doctors and scientists for her podcast. And she was talking, among many things, about the nature of memory. And she said that what she has found through her interviews and through the research is that when you remember something, the memory changes. And part of that is because we're trying to learn as humans and it's it's a survival tactic so when you remember something the brain is at work trying to learn something about that memory and so I think that that feeds into why our memories change as we are writing them and and creating our memoirs so can you talk a little bit about how that has happened for you yeah I I mean this is for me this was a, a predicament that I really never heard any memoir writer talk about but then I experienced it Um, which is that, you know, as I committed my story to the page, 
you know, I massaged every single scene in my book hundreds of times, and I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> um, and it was like tweaking it here, tightening it here, and then thinking, oh, I started in the wrong place. I'm going to start here and drop off the beginning. Um, I emphasized certain things because they were more dramatic, and I de-emphasized other things. Um, and then I eliminated characters who were there in real life because they were unnecessary to the dramatic action, and you don't want random characters yes. in your memoir. Um, sometimes I truncated things or slowed them down to increase the tension. You know, I always say to my students, slow down where it hurts. <laughs> you know, because I think they, they often tend to, when you get to the really critical moment of the scene, jump over it mm -hmm. because they don't want to go there. But mm -hmm. you have to slow down at the points where there's the most emotional resonance, you know, or the, the trauma or the, the moment of decision. Mm -hmm. So then on the page, it gets more, you know, maybe that, that you write that in four paragraphs instead of in a sentence. Mm -hmm. So in the end, you know, The Burning Light of Two Stars is not a story I remembered. It's a story that I crafted. Mm -hmm. And because of my immersion in the evolving story, the literary version that I created has really supplanted my original memories. Mm -hmm. And when I try to mm -hmm. think back to the scenes, the actual scenes in real life, I remember the scenes I wrote. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. it, it you know, just makes me wonder how much have I lost Mm -hmm. Because I've altered my memories. And, mm -hmm. and so you spent not... 10 years with them. I mean, you spent 10 years crafting this book. So you've spent so much time on these new memories. Yeah. And it, it's it's not that they're not true. It's just that they've been, they've been, it's just like if you have any memory in life and you tell it and then you retell it yes. and then maybe you embellish it a little yes. bit and you, you know, then it becomes a different memory. Yeah. And so I feel like I've lost something. Um and that, that these, the moments I chose to highlight as the key turning points in my trajectory as a character, they loom much larger than the things I chose not to write about. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe because there could have been three stories that made the same point. This is really nice to dovetail into the idea of that our stories happen to us. They're our experience, but the way we tell them and the way we choose to emphasize what we emphasize is all about who we are and what our story is. So there's that quote, there's what happened to us, and then there's how we tell the story of what happened to us. And I could have had a similar upbringing as you, but my story and, and how I reacted and what happened with my mom would be very different than what happened with yours, right? right. And so, so similarly, I think the way that we choose to render it says everything about who we are. So it is your story all over again, even more so, right? It is. And yet, I, you know, there were, there were choices I made in this memoir where I could have told the story really differently. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it had more to do with the uh, subsidiary characters. Like, I had to take the, the lessons or what I learned going through the end of my mother's life, you know, after our very difficult history. I had to show that the changes that I made as a character then had an impact in the rest of my life. You know, mm -hmm. like it wasn't just a one-off. Mm -hmm. And it might have been really natural, for instance, to show that my capacity to love, which and have an open heart, which increased, it would have been natural to tell that story in relationship to my my, my spouse. Mm -hmm. But she's an incredibly private person. Right. And I knew that basically writing about our marriage in other anything other than kind of a, a superficial way was off limits. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was a choice maybe that would have been the natural choice to make. But I ended up um, putting my brother in that role. 
and he mm. was willing for me to write about. So he be, he, he became more of a prominent character mm. in the memoir, mm. and she became less of a prominent character. Of course, she's much more important in my life than he is in real mm. life. Mm-hmm. So so those kind of choices, which which are based on a lot of different factors, changed the way I told the story. So it's not just the way I remembered it. It's also the way I crafted it, what I thought would make a better story. I wanted to tell it in the most dramatic way. And and then there were also some people I was protecting. You know, I, I hear what you're saying, and I know this from our earlier conversation on that other podcast, you needed to honor your children and your partner's privacy. And, and, I, and I know that going into your book, because you do mention it in your book as well, but I feel their presence, right? Like I feel the love and I feel the influence of them and also understand that they have their privacy and they're entitled to it. So I really appreciated that. It doesn't end up being a question for me. You know, you talk to your reader about that. This is the choice I made and why. And I never felt the lack or, mm-hmm. you know, well, what mm-hmm. are they really like? Or I don't understand this relationship. It didn't come up for me at all because the power of those relationships is so firmly present, you know, in your book. When you talk about scenes, so what I notice again and again in your book is how rich with scene your your memoir is. And, you know, as a writer myself, like it takes me a little more effort to write scene. I'd much rather just yada, 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 tell you how I feel. <laughs> scene just drives me up a wall. And yet it's what people want to read. In general, I would say most people prefer scene. And it's, it's really gripping and it helps with the tension and it draws you in. And so in terms of the final edit, how did you go from having a lot of great scenes to the finished book? You know, how did you figure out what to pare down and, and how to juggle those scenes? It was incredibly difficult. And I, there were times I thought I'm not capable of doing it. <laughs> and I, I, I wanted to walk away from it. I wanted to give up. I was convinced I could never finish this book. Mm. So it's not like I had the skills before. Um, I had to learn. And one thing I wanted, which I see every one of my students who's working on a book length, uh, you know, either usually a novel or a memoir, is they want a formula. You know, they want one roadmap, one mm-hmm. template, one lesson, one method. You know, they want to use the story grid or they want to use, you know, save the cat. They, mm-hmm. they, they're looking for something that they could plug into that will solve the problem of structure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and everyone wants someone else to look at their book and fix it for them. <laughs> yes. I, you know, I had a coach who helped me get over the finish line, uh, Joshua Townsend, mm-hmm. and I wanted him to tell me how to do it. I wanted him to do it for me. <laughs> and he just kept saying I had to do it myself. You know, and I think, you know, a developmental editor can help you, but they can't do it for you. And that there are there are nuances that only we can wrestle with ourselves. And, and this is really the essence of the creative process, mm-hmm. the, the artist or the author struggling to find the story. And, you know, I don't think it ever stops, no matter how many books you write. I think it's, it's hard. I'm really, I'm really sad to hear that, Laura. <laughs> but I'm really, I was hoping you, well, I'm reading your book and I'm like, this, I mean, I'm, I'm happy that you're telling me that this was hard for you, but I'm also exhausted on your behalf because, I mean, the scene work is unbelievable. I mean, anyone who needs to know how to write a scene and how to get action integrated with pushing the narrative forward, like you have mastered it in this book. And I can't even imagine how much work it took you. So, okay, so when I was at the end after, you know, 10 years, I had really good scenes. So I had learned how to write a really compelling scene, Mm -hmm. but I still, that wasn't a finished book. 
this, I just want to talk about the process I went through for the final edit. And the final edit took me about a month, and I cut 12,000 words out of the book. <laughs> um, and and this is, I just, this is not going to work for everyone, but this is what I did. The first thing is I printed out the book. And I got out of my home environment. So I, I had a student who lives in my town, and she had a little shed in her backyard. And she said, I could go sit in that shed as much as I <laughs> wanted to. I could come and go as I wanted. So I used her shed, and I took the printout of the book. And at that point, I had actually set it aside for a year. And I think my success, in part, was really mm -hmm. coming to it fresh. I don't think people necessarily need a year, you know, because for me, it was the first year of the pandemic, and I was just in an altered state like everyone else. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you need some gap. It might be a month. It might be two months. It might mm -hmm. be three months. You know, and maybe you have your beta readers reading during that time, or maybe you're working on a promotional plan, or you're doing something else that's moving the project forward, or you're working on something else. But you set the manuscript aside so that you could come back to it dispassionately. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I was like a laser beam able to cut what no longer belonged. And I think the most important thing was I had finally understood what the story was. You know, mm -hmm. after many years, I finally understood the story. And once I understood that, um, it was much easier to cut. Yes, and, and when yes. I read it, I just let the story wash over me. I didn't, I made zero line edits, no fastidious notes. I stayed out of the weeds of <laughs> the individual scenes. And so it was more like, looking at the book from 30,000 feet up in the air, looking at the macro. Mm -hmm. And my mindset was to read with an open mind and just to ruthlessly relinquish my precious darlings, you know, mm -hmm. the, the sentences and paragraphs and stories that I loved. And I, I did not stay stuck in my original idea. I had to be absolutely willing to cut or modify. And so I, I asked myself, after all these years of working on this story, what have I discovered about my story that I didn't know before? And how does that impact my through line? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I wanted to know, has my through line changed? And what mm -hmm. isn't part of it anymore? Mm -hmm. And can I justify the, keeping those things? Um, so it's really like, what's extraneous? How can I streamline this story? What can I cut? And I was ruthless. And I, mm -hmm. I, I just don't believe words get wasted when they're cut. I mean, some of these things I've repurposed for marketing. Mm -hmm. Some of these things I cut, I've now published as standalone pieces. And whatever, even if I threw them out and never used them, every word I write contributed to my yes. understanding of the whole. Yes, um, and, and I feel the same way. I'm, I want to say that I, so I'm not pairing myself with you. I absolutely think I have lazy tendencies as a writer and I never want to <laughs> put out a lot of effort unless I think there's going to be a good result which is really not a good way to approach art I tend to get better with the time passing between writing it and looking at it later my editing skills are so much sharper on work that sat there for a little bit sometimes a day works with shorter pieces but sometimes a week or two does wonders mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. certainly for a book oh, time is just the best cure and you really do understand what your story is and what you were maybe extraneously holding on to. But it is important what you just said because nothing has to be wasted. I mean, it's just like all of it is going toward the momentum of this finished story. And you you used some of those words in these marketing materials and for short pieces. But even if you don't, it's good for me to remember as a writer and hopefully for other writers too, You're it's all getting you there. So you haven't wasted your time in exploring even 
even if it doesn't show up on the page later. Right. I, I totally agree. And I think if you don't take the gap between looking at your work, then you just, like, your eyes just roll over the words mm -hmm. because you expect them to be there and they're familiar. Mm -hmm. One other thing I did is when I recorded the audiobook, Mm -hmm. I learned a lot about my book that I couldn't see any other way. So reading things out loud mm. is really powerful. Yes, um, for sure. But when I was in that little room, I, I basically, I cross-examined every chapter, every scene, every paragraph, every sentence, every single detail, and would just say, do you belong here? <laughs> you know, and what work are you doing to move this story along? You know, mm -hmm. and is this detail, is it tied to everything else in this book? Or is it just like a random detail that came out in my first draft that I, I thought it was pretty or beautiful mm -hmm. or poetic? Mm -hmm. But is it tied to the emotional reality of this scene? Yeah. You know, is it tied to a thread that ties the whole book together? You know, or are you just still there because I like you <laughs> yes. and I'm attached to you? And so yes. I became like a warrior. Um, one of the things Joshua <laughs> taught me, which was incredibly helpful in this process, he said, establish and move on. Mm -hmm. In other words, that trust your reader. You don't have to establish the same point over and over and over again. Like you, I found I had a few different scenes that all did the same work. They all mm -hmm. established the same thing. And I only needed one. Mm -hmm. So I got rid of the other two. Um, and I, the other thing I did was I started really playing with, I cut a lot of chapters in half. I had long mm -hmm. chapters. And then I just started moving them around and seeing how different segues from one chapter to the next created more tension. And I, I went for those cliffhangers. I, I wanted to create the most possible tension. In our final few minutes, what are some of your most loved memoirs? Who, what do you recommend? What do you like reading? I knew you were going to ask me this question, so I looked at my bookshelf. And <laughs> I know it's hard sometimes to remember. Well, the ones I picked actually were older okay. memoirs, not newer. Um, one of my favorites is Expecting Adam by Martha Beck. And I think what I love about that is I love books that combine pathos and humor. You know, which is what I really tried to do in my in my <laughs> memoirs. I love when you're crying and laughing on the same page. Yes. Um, and so that that book did that. Another one that I I've always loved is called Half the House, mm -hmm. um, by Richard Hoffman, and um, he was a poet. And then he he wrote a memoir about his working class family in Boston area and his alcoholic father and this pedophile coach he had. Mm. And it was so it was a book about sexual abuse, but it was. What I loved about it, and I think what really influenced me, was that his father was a bastard. Mm. And he wrote about his father with such tenderness and love. Wow. And, and that memoir really made me realize that it was possible to really humanize the worst person. Mm. And it was such a generous book. Mm. Um, I put, uh, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Mm -hmm. It was one of the first memoirs I me read. Me too, me too. <laughs> um, Angela's Ashes, just because it's yes. just so beautifully written, and The Glass Castle. So, I mean, yeah. a lot of these are classics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you for sharing that. I love that. You know, no one, so far, no one has uh, duplicated their favorites. There's just so much out there to read, so many beautiful memoirs. So on in our last moment, uh, before we tell listeners where to find you, do you want to offer one more or one piece of advice to writers or memoirists that maybe we haven't touched on yet, just a little touchstone? Yeah, I would say, you know, to keep growing as an artist and to keep growing as a writer. I mean, one of the most thrilling and really deeply satisfying experiences I've had in my, you know, 40 years as a writer 
was to take on the challenge of writing this memoir. Because before that, I'd only written uh, information books, mm-hmm. you know, how-to, basically, uh, non- nonfiction. Um, and this was a story, and so the burning light of two stars required that I learn an entirely new set of skills. And, you know, despite having six books under my belt, I'd never written a full-length story before. So I had to learn about storytelling. I had to learn about how to create momentum. I had to learn about deep characterization and many other skills that we can we generally think of in the realm of fiction. And, you know, it was terrifying. I didn't know if I could do it. It was challenging, but it was so incredibly rewarding. Mm-hmm. So, so that would be my advice is push yourself to take on new challenges that help you grow as a writer, that there is Mm -hmm. always more to learn, and just keep studying the craft. Mm. Thank you. So, Laura, where can people most easily find you? And I will link to everything in the show notes. The best place for me is my website, which is lauradavis.net. You can go there and you could download the first five chapters of the memoir for free. There's links to buy it and to buy the audiobook. There's links there to all the workshops and classes that I'm teaching. I'm taking a group of writers to Tuscany in June. <laughs> uh, there's information about mm-hmm. that. And I have, I'm, I've just now scheduled like four in-person retreats um, for this spring and summer. Um, yeah. I hope they happen. And, and uh-huh. then I also am doing a lot of work with people online. So you could find out about my teaching, both the in-person retreats and the online classes and workshops at lauradavis.net. On Facebook, I'm at, at The Writer's Journey. On Instagram, at Laura Sari Davis, L-A-U-R-A-S-A-R-I Davis. Um, But my website is best. You can sign up there. I will send you weekly writing prompts and blog pieces and all kinds of other goodies. Yeah, so much. So many goodies. Thank you so much for being my guest again. I just love talking with you. I love talking to you, too. I I hope that this is fruitful um, and gives people some inspiration and some food for thought. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here. 